Hey folks, Conversations Podcast, thanks for joining us. Uh, this is part two of a conversation we started with Anna Kitko. If you didn't catch that, you might want to go back in the podcast feed um, and get her uh, insight on the Reformers and the incredible work that Luther and others did. Um, but if you're all up to speed, then uh, pick up here and let's hear from Anna Kitko. Yeah, I can imagine the people in that time feeling that way. Luther felt that way. And then all of a sudden, when he starts teaching this, it makes perfect sense for people to be traveling miles and miles and miles to come and, mm-hmm. and study under him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that he worked on, not by name, by this name, but close, was two kingdom theology, mm-hmm. which is we should have never been mixing politics and Christianity at all. This is where all these problems came from. And it just mm-hmm. kind of happened. And then we just didn't do anything to stop it. Mm-hmm. How are we going to keep this from happening again? We got to stop this corruption. The Pope is being represented. This is what he mm-hmm. believed is being represented by these guys who are misrepresented. They're using him. Mm. in order to make money for themselves, simony. Mm. And so this is where the setting begins because the the Pope, Pope Leo X, who was one of the worst popes that ever was mm. <laughs> as far as greed is concerned, mm-hmm. um, he didn't last very long. He was he could have done a lot, but he didn't. He was too busy focusing on money. He, his, one, his One of his parties cost a seventh of the entire treasury of Europe. Oh, my gosh. Um, at the time, oh, my gosh. Yeah, he was a hot mess. Uh but Luther didn't know this. And so he met a man named Johannes Tetzel. Tetzel was the grand master of coercion. Mm-hmm. This man was so committed to getting – he could get the most money from the people. Mm-hmm. And he was so committed he would use his the burning of his own flesh as he traveled through so that the people had to smell what they would smell like if they were in purgatory or hell. Oh, gosh. That's how he got them to give money. That's how committed yeah. he was all scored. <laughs> but Johannes Tetzel, he's famous mm-hmm. for the phrase, when the coin in the coffer rings, a, a soul, soul from, from purgatory, purgatory springs. springs. And he, Martin Luther encounters him and just Martin Luther just loses it. He's like, this has to end. Not in my parish. We're not doing this here. And he writes the 95 Theses. So he didn't necessarily confront him head on. He did it through the 95 Theses. Yes. He just, all he did was go, nope, this is, he's, he's representing the Pope. He's clearly wrong. This is clearly coercion. There's the Pope has to know that this is happening. Mm -hmm. We're, we're done. I've got to speak directly to him. So what Luther did with the 95 Theses was he took all of the problems that he was seeing by these traveling representatives of the Pope that he didn't realize were representatives who were directly commissioned by Pope Leo mm. and said, here's all the things they're lying to you about. Mm-hmm. Here are all the issues. And I'm going to nail it to the church door, which was the announcement location for a city. Right. Center of town. Yes. That's mm-hmm. where you went. And right. so the most beloved. So it wasn't beloved, strange. There would have been other things also nailed covered, to that door. Covered. Yeah. In fact, you can see the door. Today, because it's in, it's it's still in the church. It's not up anymore because so many people went and nailed things they were upset right. about to that door after Luther that they had to take it down to preserve it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the current door of the church is now just the ninety-five theses in German. Oh wow! In oh, bronze, wow. yeah, it's really beautiful. Wow. Um, uh, anyway, he he nails it to the door, and at this point in history, we have what's called the Gutenberg printing press which means we can really quickly replicate material now mm-hmm. because we can do typeset. We don't have to do it by hand. Mm-hmm. And the most beloved theology teacher is ticked. <laughs> and so everybody's like, oh, Luther said something about it. Let's go read it. Right. And the townsfolk were like, let's copy it so that right. everybody can read it. So, I mean, just real quickly, just to point out Luther's intent, it's not as if he thought, I'm going to 
cause I'm not I'm going to sever no. the church in half. No. He was thinking I I want to start a conversation and this is how you start conversations in our context. You mm-hmm. you make a public announcement on the public bulletin board. And then it was not his intent that these things would then get mass reproduced and um he no. did not he didn't have a grand plan for the Great Reformation. Not either. even a little bit. But no. it's interesting because it just makes me think of like how human innovation has often happened. At I mean, you think about the Roman roads. Well, that is the reason the gospel went. One of the reasons the gospel went viral. Exactly. You think about the, the, the printing press. And, yes. Well, that is the reason that a huge reason that the Reformation mm-hmm. went viral as fast as it did. Yes. So. They, they, the 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 infrastructure could no longer control the flow of information anymore. Hmm. Because the flow of information superseded them, and suddenly mm-hmm. they're exposed, mm-hmm. and that's normally what happens. It's sure. fascinating. Yes. Sure. Um, so he goes back, thinks nothing of it, and is like, "This is this is something the Pope is going to see because I'm a monk and everything, and I'll let my local guys know. Don't get coerced. These are Simonists. Don't listen to them." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he gets a letter from his oversight that you need to come to the location of all of the bishops and cardinals, particularly a man named Cardinal Cayetan. Remember, cardinal is the thing directly below Pope. Mm -hmm. Um, So the cardinal over your area is calling you specifically to come talk to him. You're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. And he's like, why? Mm -hmm. I'm just, all I've been doing is alerting the Pope to all of the horrible things that are happening in his Mm -hmm. name. And that is where he finds out that the Pope commissioned these guys and you don't get to, you don't get to question what mm-hmm. the Pope does with the guys that he commissions. Mm-hmm. And that's where Luther begins the problematic and very sticky movement of functionally arguing on a, on a papal level mm-hmm. theology. Mm-hmm. And they make the, the horrible mistake of taking him on publicly yeah. in front of his people on these issues. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that is... Um, what's called Worms, the, the council at Worms, which and Worms is a city in Germany. Um, and that's where he has to, he has to be put on trial for everything he's ever written about all of his curriculum and the things that have kind of people had been being taught for all these years that the, this, you know, problematic for the Pope because it makes him look bad and makes him, you know, look like he's not in control and mm-hmm. that's not going to work. And the arguments come down and Luther makes his stand and it's very very beautiful and at the end they finally ask him are you going to recant you, it's mm-hmm. your your call mm-hmm. you recant and you burn your recant. own material take back your words yep right? yeah this was wrong you say mm-hmm. i was wrong and you'd be done teaching this stuff mm-hmm. or we're going to excommunicate you and at this point in history excommunication literally meant you are going to hell and we are going to make that be a thing it was more because, than just being kicked out of the church oh my gosh yes, yes huge it's like it's life ending for eternity mm-hmm. um and you're not allowed to, you, you, you will be impoverished for the rest of your life. So um, Luther, as bold and smart as he was, and hopefully at that point as well-grounded as he had become in the New Testament, nevertheless, what kind of courage when that option is put, toward, <laughs> not just, you, you know, you'll lose your credibility, or not even just that you'll die, but you will go to hell forever. Yes. And yes. that's what he was faced with. Yes, and Luther, he is so terrified at this moment. And he, he kicks himself about this until the day he dies, that he asks for a moment to think about it. Mm. Instead of saying what he knew was the truth, mm. he, he, he fails his own nerve and he, he, he never forgives himself for it for the rest of his Ugh. life. Even though he makes one of the most beautiful speeches uh-huh. that ever, the here I stand moment. And keep moment. in mind, this was the monk that a few years ago was staying up, quivering through the night, certain of mm-hmm. God's doom and wrath upon him at every mm-hmm. turn. Mm-hmm. And, and now he's just 
Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of bravery that came again mm-hmm. from love and gratitude as opposed to fear. Mm-hmm. But I love this story. I love that it's not a Hollywood script. It's not that, a Hollywood that script. Luther was human, and yep. yet yeah. he did I make need the right a minute. decision. Yeah. Yes, he asked, "Can I please take a minute to consider?" So talk talk about just I, this moment. I, I'm, I've heard this story, and I'm still getting chills because it's just awesome. <laughs> it is. Talk about it. and Talk about the speech. The hero. Okay, so the speech. So he comes back, and this is the most famous speech, and this is what this is what Lutherans use, and this is why you hear me use it all the time, is because it's so habitual. I can't get away from it, and I love it so much. Um, the speech that he makes is begins with um, some of the stuff I've written. I, I agree. I have written too harshly about mm-hmm. the Pope's pre- pe- both past and present. Mm-hmm. He goes, however, um, what I wrote is contingent upon the word of God. And my conscience is held captive mm-hmm. by the word of God. Mm-hmm. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, I got chills. Because that was, he was literally. And I've heard that a thousand yes, times. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I need to memorize that as well. Yes. That needs to be. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why you hear Anna constantly. It's a, it's a neuroses almost. Because mm-hmm. I say, is your conscience held captive by the word of God? That's, mm-hmm. that's my, because I can't read your mind. Tell me now, is that what's going on? Because I need to know how serious this is. Is this, I don't really care, or is this, my conscience is held captive by the word of God? Well, then let's discuss the word of God point. Because now we have a shared space to discuss theology with how serious this is. And that's how you come to, to fix problems between two Christians who are disagreeing. Because um, it's, it's a shared desire to love the Lord then, as opposed to a It's interesting that, again, going back to his early days as a monk, his overactive conscience tortured him, but and his sensitive conscience, and now his sensitive conscience is stealing him and his reserve and strength. Yep, what the Lord does that. Thing. He does that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like the, your sensitivities may or may not actually be vulnerabilities. Actually, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, and it's a good thing. And the uh, things you think are bugs might actually become a feature very rapidly. Yeah. yeah. And so these last few incidences in the life of Martin Luther that you've highlighted you would say that they were altogether kind of catalytic in what people now call the Protestant Reformation. Yes. Uh, those are the springboards from which a whole plethora of things took place over the next, well, last 500 years, I suppose, mm-hmm. but certainly yes. the the rest of Martin Luther's life and even some of his predecessor, Calvin and some others. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, because it, what it did was it took all the, because all the people watching, I mean, there's this whole audience, not only did it have the, the townspeople were listening outside, Right, there are no windows at this time period in history because you have to have the cross breeze and everything's made out of stone and, um, so that you can hear them. The eruption of the people outside was to begin singing Luther's hymns. Oh <laughs> and the people inside erupted in a debate because now Luther is done speaking and now there's a debate between all of the leadership because functionally, remember, the leadership politically and the church were intertwined. Mm-hmm. So even though the church technically had the right to say, this is what we expect you to do, they still relied upon all of the wealth of Europe in order to do any of those things. Mm -hmm. So they had to keep everybody happy. And all of the leadership loved Luther. Mm -hmm. He had done all this work. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things that he did was overturn their position on suicide. Mm -hmm. So any of the people that were committing suicide based upon the horrible um, situation they found themselves in, he was still burying on church grounds Mm -hmm. because they were not automatically sent to hell. And he was Uh, like, that's ridiculous. None of that is in the scriptures. 
So, so let me ask you. So they loved him. So this thing takes off like wildfire across Europe. But what did that look like on the in the beginning stages? Like all this was happening in Germany, and then it probably went to some other towns in Germany. Or, or how did that? Happen? Yes. Okay. What was so, the multiplicative effect? Yes, positives and negatives. The first is that in or in a trial like this, before you're excommunicated, you have to wait for what's called a papal bull to be signed in Rome, and then it has to travel to get to you. Okay, a paper bull is of the physical signature of the Pope saying, "Yep, you're excommunicated." This stamp, right? Yeah, this mm-hmm. is this is your, for sure. Signature. It's happened. So you have a very limited amount of time, and the leadership of the area, a man named Frederick the Wise, um, determined that the best way to deal with this and to keep Luther alive because people were going to want to kill him for saying what he did and coming against the Pope, very as normal would happen with, with theological disagreements. You have people who represent one side and another represent the other side, and they're zealous about it. So people are going to want to kill Luther for what he just did. Mm-hmm. Um, they hid him. So they took him out by force. They put, a, they put a, um, a hood over him, and they took him to Vortberg Castle, and they hid him there. And this is where that moment where he says, well, if I'm going to be stuck here against my will, then you're going to bring me a, a Greek New Testament, and you're going to bring me a dictionary, a Greek-German dictionary, and I'm going to I'm going to translate the scriptures then for the people. Because if I'm going to die, I might as well give them what they need. Incredible. And so he spent his whole time in Vorberg Castle doing just that, posing as a knight, so that he never got to really leave the castle grounds except for once or twice because they were too worried he was going to, people are going to recognize him and he would die. Hmm. Um, and in this midtime, this mid this midterm time, zealots on the what would become the Protestant side said, well, if they're not going to listen to us, then we're going to start burning cathedrals then. Mm-hmm. We're going to start a war. Mm-hmm. And that was his, um, one of his protégés, one of his, um, the, the kids that really liked his work. His name was um, Andreas Karlstadt. And Andreas took his work and just and did made Luther very, very, very upset while he was stuck in this castle because he would have never been okay with people going and turning around and behaving the way that he saw the, the negative players in the Roman Catholic camp behave. Mm. So this movement of we're going to burn all the cathedrals down and we're going to rip Roman Catholicism from the ground and mm. all this horrible stuff. It's kind of like what some of Jesus' followers wanted to do, thinking he was the Messiah, wanted to yes. be zealots as well. And, yes. And uh, thought he was coming to take... Yep. You know, things by force rather yep. than, and so that happened to Luther in a, in a Luther, in a yes. Way. So while Luther's stuck in this castle, the the German countryside is burning, mm. um, and they're waiting for Rome to respond. And things are happening, and they're starting movements and trying to get um, other people to start movements in their in the local cities. Um, word has made it all the way to Switzerland. That's Huldrych Zwingli mm-hmm. that this is happening, and he's like, "Well, I've been teaching something similar to this for a mm-hmm. while too. Are we doing this here? Maybe I'll travel to go see Luther." And then the people who are getting hurt and all of these abbots and the abbot and abbotesses who are getting burnt by all of these quote-unquote followers of Luther are now find, trying to find Martin Luther and go, what have you done? Mm. And that's how Martin Luther meets his wife. Oh, wow. That's Katharina von Bora, mm-hmm. a very, very famous figure in um, female leadership and then theology. Um, and she comes to him bald and burnt in a sardine barrel along with seven other nuns who they smuggled out to keep from being burned alive. And so she takes her cohort straight to Martin Luther, says, we need to speak to the man who did this to us because we need to take him on. Like, you're about to face God. How could you have allowed this sort of thing? And Martin's like, I didn't. I'm shocked. Just he met as shocked his wife as while she was bald and smelling like sardines. Uh-huh. Yep. That's fascinating. Wearing, <laughs> nothing, not wearing that. nothing but a burlap sack. That's oh Katarina von Bora. And wow. she was the one who marched into the castle in order to find him and go answer for this. 
Yeah, yeah that's his future so wife. So one of the things that just the Protestant Reformation was not squeaky clean. A lot no. of people just think, oh, this was this incredible pivotal moment, pivotal moment, and it was, but it came with hurt and sacrifice and heretical things and violence mm. and cost. Yeah. Yes, and Luther hated that. Yeah. And yeah. he kept pointing back over and over and again, this is not the way this is supposed to be. We don't run to the other side of the craziness spectrum and respond with exaggerated. We reform what exists. We don't abandon the church. You mm-hmm. reform the church. You pull out, you say this needs to end and you do it through debate and you do it through pointing at the scriptures and going, this cannot stay this way. This is what the word of God, do you love Jesus or not? This is what he says. Mm. That's how you do it, which is why on Martin Luther's gravestone, it clearly reads Roman Catholic. Mm. He refused mm. to relent. I am a Roman Catholic. I just am not willing to, I'm, this, what they did was coercive. This isn't what it was supposed to have ever been. Mm. Two, just two themes that I hear out of that that I think are relevant for us today. And one is that when a, a move or an act of God happens or you know something pivotal uh, in history as relates to Jesus Christ, a lot of times uh, there is confusion alongside it the, and, and, and hurt and um, overreaction overreaction or we could even you know if we want to spiritualize it and say very simply an attack of the enemy happens mm-hmm. along with it uh, a counterattack if you will mm-hmm. um, so that's one thing that I heard and then another is that it was interesting to me that this reformation didn't happen from the top down it was a grassroots movement that was helped catalyzed by uh, a bunch of people who got killed along the way but then eventually this no-name monk mm-hmm. Not in Rome, but in Germany. never wanted to start any of this and never Mm. called himself uh, a reformer. Mm. He had no knowledge of what was going to happen down the road. And and nobody would have ever seen this movement started like You can't predict things like this. When when acts of God happen and God moves. That's right. They happen in very unexpected ways. That's right. And how, how fitting, though, that it was... The, the these power structures were toppled by someone who had no aspiration toward power. Yep. You know, I think that's mm. I think that's by God's design. And and when he was offered it, said absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Which is exactly the type of character you want mm-hmm. for a spiritual that's leader. Right. Right. Is the knowledge that no, you don't want me to have that. I don't want I already know what happens with that. I'm mm-hmm. a human too, take that away. Yeah, that's right. It's mm. brilliant. So there's your there's your Luther. That brings us up to basically 1535, okay. when the rest of the Holy Roman Empire said, "Nope, we have to face the Lord. You can mm-hmm. cut off our heads." This was a big deal. This was the peace, the Augsburg Confession. This is when all of the leadership, the guys who were both political and religious leaders of Germany, bowed before the Holy Roman Emperor and said, "We would rather you cut off our heads than we remove the Word of God from our people." And they mm. bowed before him and lowered their heads, waiting for the sword, and he wouldn't bring him. He wouldn't bring him down. Mm. That's the Augsburg Confession, and that's that was during Luther's lifetime, and mm. that was when there was enough peace. Now that now we start the process of extrapolating truth from Roman Catholicism, mm. and that gives you the dawn of all of the denominational breakup that occurs. Mm. One side of the spectrum saying, "Tear it all down. We're starting from scratch." Mm-hmm all the way to don't tear anything down. We're going to go piece by piece and we're only going to remove bricks that really need to be removed and then we're going to build slowly. Mm. And that gives us, you know, the, the, the dawn of Anglicanism, which is Henry VIII is in power in England watching all of this go down. And boy, wouldn't it be nice if the Pope saw me as an ally and gave me the power over my state if I said I'd be Catholic. 
in all of this. And sure enough, he did. And he got the Pope's blessing. And he said, fantastic. Now that I'm the head of the state at theologically and politically in the mm. eyes of the Pope, I can divorce my wife now. And that's the beginning of all the Henry VIII heads mm -hmm. rolling stuff and all of the counter-reformation and Bloody Mary in England and all of the, the foundation points for all of American Christianity. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, you, you can't, you can't, you can't understate the historical connotations of what took place uh, when, when Luther discovered the New Testament and saw the fallacies of the church. Uh -huh. I mean, what came out of that uh, over the last 500 years, yes. I mean... And, uh, yeah, and, and I just wonder if that hadn't happened with Martin Luther, what, like, what was already stirring, what would have taken place, but the fact that this one guy was bold and stood yes. up and made some of these decisions. And on a practical level, when you watch Anna come in and she's kind of not in a good mood around the end of October for Reformation Day, which is October 31st when he nails that 95 Theses on the door. Mm -hmm. And the Roman Catholic Church tries to do something every single year to try to extend a hand out to the Lutherans to say, you know, we probably could have handled this a little bit better because we haven't even gotten to things like the Council of Trent, mm -hmm. where they basically say anybody who affirms that salvation by grace alone is real, that salvation apart from the church is real. All the things that we would say as Protestant orthodoxy, mm -hmm. that you are anathematized, which means you can't be saved. Mm. Um, that when they do that, like what happened a couple of years ago, and they say, we'll go ahead and we'll give you an indulgence and a commemorative coin with Luther's face on it, that all the Lutherans are like, are you kidding right now? <laughs> this is why we still have the hangups. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of, nope, we can't get away from the 1500s. This is why. Mm. So you understand the context. Hmm. Well, we could have, uh, I've said this a couple of times, uh, we could have a whole series just on oh, yeah. all of these things. There's and there, I know there's so much you're not covering people here. People have done. That. Oh man, of course, yeah, hundred <laughs> yeah, percent, certainly happens. <laughs> I joked. I do, I don't know if it was with you or who it was with recently. Um, and I say recently. I say recently, but that could be like any time in the last five years. Mm. I'm getting so old that that's how that normally works. <laughs> um, I was joking with somebody here about doing a church history class, uh -huh. and I said it'll only take about seventy two sessions <laughs> if we time it out correctly. And yeah. even that's probably not right. Yeah. But, yeah, it's too much. So here's where my mind is going: is is we, you think of the situation that that you laid out for us. It was happening with the papacy, just the church at large, the corruption, the the, the mess that it was, and and lots of sincere meaning people. I think they're. I, I I think the saints of that age were peasants whose names we don't know, who mm -hmm. who did not have a. A, a lick of theology they just they just knew Jesus and they hadn't you know they didn't have the scriptures but they were sincere and devout and I just I think those are the the saints of that period but anyway at that moment if you were to sort of take a snapshot of what we know now we would say this is an absolutely hopeless situation like things are so profoundly broken and hopeless and then by God's divine hand in the course of about a generation um, now it cascading way beyond that but things were completely transformed mm -hmm. um which kind of pulls me into the the present where where we um we may look around and go things feel pretty busted um and there are lots of people who who for good reason feel really hopeful i count myself among them but there are ways you could look say what's going on in our broader society what's what's things are you know these trends seem irreversible these uh, where where is their hope in this? And I just kind of want to 
you know, give a little perspective to say, I, I think it's fair to say the church is in better shape than it was then, <laughs> like in this moment, in this context, um, and is by no means, whether, you know, you could work with that statement. But Our standard of living is much higher oh, here yes. in America, for sure. For sure, yes. <laughs> um, but we... Even for the, the, no matter, even if you look at our current circumstances through the most pessimistic of lenses, um, there's no reason to think that the King of Glory cannot step in and, frankly, will not step in and renew his people as he he always has. Well, and I would say also, you know, a lot of people go to some kind of Catholic bashing when they think about the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, because of the sacrifices Luther made, I mean, the Catholic Church and Protestant churches, none of them are are guiltless. We all have our warts, Mm -hmm. you know, all this stuff. But the Catholic Church was reformed in a lot of ways over the next 500 years, uh, even including the Council of Trent. I mean, um, still glaring problems you know um but uh it wasn't like the the protestants just took and make it made everything perfect and the catholics continued on a you know i I guess my point is it makes me think about one of my favorite parables that jesus talked about and that is that very simple one the, the parable of the mustard seed it started small it would have been you know something that the birds of the air could have picked off and later in that parable like that same verse they're using it for shade, and that's how the kingdom of God works. And so it wasn't just that all these Protestant churches started and went off, but even God did a work in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really cool. Yeah. For me, it's a picture of preservation. So even when, when, when you feel like all is lost because everything is contingent on human mm-hmm. beings, you're reminded that it isn't. Mm-hmm. And that is a wonderful mercy. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we could see that that's really true is if we can watch every human being fail and then realize he still preserved it, mm-hmm. which means he's not going to leave us. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Yeah. And when we're oppressed and when we're tied down and when we cannot be otherwise, mm-hmm. he's still not going to leave us. And that really matters. But to your point, too, mm-hmm. I, I said this earlier, um, the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation was post-tenebrous lux, which meant out of darkness light. Mm-hmm. And that can be our cry, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the greater the darkness, the the, the brighter, more the brighter the light the is light apparent. Shines. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's remarkable the way God intervenes, and uh, I, I'm so eager to see what He does in the in the coming, however long, whether months, years, or decades. But mm-hmm. um, Aslan is on the move, and great things are coming. I'm, yes, I'm so so excited. Okay, so Anna, let's shift gears just a bit here and kind of look at the big picture here. It's like some of the themes I see that led to all of the difficulty and corruption in the church over over the course of many centuries, and yet they still landed there. I, I see an emphasis of fear over love, um, and when clearly love is greater than fear. <laughs> um and then perhaps most pronounced is um, just corruption by way of power, like the desire for political power, just in general, in any power that might be accessible, then corrupting and people losing the plot along the way. Um, and then that feels like those are the things that led to the mess that it became um, in its in its worst state. Does that feel like a right summary to you? Or, or are there other themes that stand out to you um, that really marked the sort of, I don't know, the degrading quality? <laughs> uh, you know, the 
the nominalism and then the uh, and then yeah 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 so that's i i would say that's dead i would focus on exactly what you said and functionally we would circle back to what josh said originally about the the people of god on the bottom level need access to the scriptures and they need to be studying them because you can't keep accountable anybody if you don't even know what they say Mm -hmm. and there's no real way to get around that so even you yeah. know somebody like me who's dealing with cult theology all the time and abuse of power on a on a somewhat obvious scale, um, the only way to battle that is to make it where every single human being has access to the truth, right. and that's functionally what the Lord has done all the way through mm-hmm. His entire relationship with us. Mm-hmm. So and that feeds into the the government thing, the the mm-hmm. the, the merger of politics and Christianity in particular, mm-hmm. and how quickly it happens mm-hmm. and how naturally it happens yeah and that we don't you know we need to be aware of the creeping nature of that relationship and it does creep and it's a regular problem that we can't get away from because that makes Mm -hmm. sense obviously we're having to make decisions on the ground Mm -hmm. but that we have to make the active effort to not follow in the footsteps of our predecessors and to remember that the lord himself warned about this in first samuel when the people were asking for a king to begin, I mean, this—it's mm. not like this has was a, 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 a first century problem. Right, it goes all the way back Thousands to the of dawn of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need a king; you have one. Mm. We don't need a king; we have one. Mm. He gets to control how mm. we see politics, and he has given us the liberty to engage in politics as we see fit. But that right. doesn't mean merge Christianity with a political system. Yeah, Christianity is to say separate. So keeping that moderation, which is near impossible, I know, mm. um, but trying to trying to keep that. Yeah, well, as we know, like history tends to repeat itself. Yes, and I think we are seeing some aspects of what we saw happen in the past trying to bubble up now, mm-hmm. um, and and although I can't help but wonder if maybe there's a greater level of culpability now because access to the scriptures is not our limiting. There was a huge lid that essentially for a very very long time. Uh, you had to be wealthy to have any chance to get your hands on the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not that's not our reality now. It's not the moment. We have we have access to the scriptures yes. and more and more information about it than we could ever consume in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, right there at our fingertips and many usually just for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet some of those same sort of collusions and the same you know, yes. tendencies toward power and political yes. influence um, are still creeping in, in mm-hmm. to some degree. And there might be a psych explanation for that. And when I think about this, that's where I tend to go. And that's that mm-hmm. when it's really obvious that the scriptures are removed from access points, like, okay, this is why they didn't have the scriptures. But what happens when the scriptures become so accessible, we forget they're there? Oh, and how sure. is that not functionally the same? Because we've habitualized they're always there you're now blind to it and functionally psychologically that's the same thing yeah how is satan maybe using that to his advantage and to our disadvantage yeah it becomes so normative that it's not held in that incredible regard that that luther when he went to rome and he was able to get his hands on a new testament right the the you know the trembling honor he must have felt to hold that in his hands like well well, i've got it in my pocket right now in hundreds of different versions and i don't feel that same sort of profundity about the whole thing right that's a good that's a good point and a little i mean a little a little startling yeah i don't know how to fix it Mm. do you know what i mean there's a there's a 
I don't even know how to begin responding. Hmm. Like, how do you make someone aware of that without it being obvious and then forgetting it immediately? Hmm. Do you know? And it's like, is this a, you know, I'm not from the Bible Belt. Is this a, is this a particularly Bible Belt problem? Because, you know, all of us try to get here as quickly as humanly possible because it's so lovely. But then are the people who are the leaders in the Bible Belt that are holding the lines theologically, like the guys that are the most serious. And I say that in like theological debates. They're really serious about studying theology. They're, they're serious about interweaving the Lord into everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's what makes, like, for example, East Tennessee such an incredible place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, are, how, do we, how do we get them to be listened to by more people? Because the rest of the world doesn't operate like this. And I know because I've been in it a very long time. Um, they just don't care. How do you make somebody who doesn't care, care? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you, my thoughts go to, you know, upholding the beauty of Scripture from every platform that we've got. Yeah. Um, and But where my, where my mind went is... Uh, who who was it? Woody Allen, who horribly said, "The heart wants what the heart wants," mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the scenarios around that were absolutely disgusting. But um, pedophilia, notwithstanding, um, he and incest. Anyway, that's horrible. Uh, but he said, "Hey, people, just you know, you just want what you want." And what I see is a lot of people who are. We talked about this in a podcast a while back. Um, in people who are biblically conservative on some level, embracing a measure of hedonism at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, the the joke Sharon and I made about it was just pointing out the obvious strangeness of country music, for example, where like almost every verse of every country song, it seems, and in one verse we'll talk about um, uh, drunkenness. Yes. Um, it will talk, what, what were the three things? It's uh, drunkenness. Um, sex and church, yeah, and it's just, and I, th- I think people people have kind of gotten their mind like, okay, cool, I'll get drunk on Friday, I'll have illicit sex on Saturday, I'll go to church on Sunday, uh-huh. and this is sort of the American way, or this is sort of the, in some sense, a new conservative way. Yeah, sort and of, it couldn't be otherwise. This sort is of hedonistic voices are becoming increasingly conservative voices, and. And I mean politically conservative. Yeah. And political conservatism is conflated wrongly with biblical conservatism. I mean, uh-huh. as far as like those, those pe- most people don't even know that there's a distinction, right. I'm afraid. And so it's like, oh, okay, so conservative equals this and this. Uh-huh. I think part of the, the brackish waters of religion and politics keep us from seeing, kind of seeing the obvious. Yes, and that's probably compelling because of the amount of fear-mongering that goes on in politics as well. That kind of, you have to pick, otherwise we're all going to, post-apocalyptic, The mm. America's going to, to crash and burn if you don't opt for specifically one of these two options. Sure. Yeah, if you don't have urgency, you don't have a message. If you, do, if you can't create panic, you can't create a platform. Yes. Yeah. I think you're onto something. Yeah, if someone were to say... For example, politically, same same type of thing is is if somebody said I heard somebody explaining this recently. I don't remember who it was, or I'd credit them, but um, they were saying, um, "Oh, I'm starting to remember." It doesn't matter. <laughs> they were saying that if a politician uh, 
runs for office or an aspiring politician runs for office and says, hey, I think the guys in D.C. are really doing a pretty good job. And if you elect me, I will I will maintain that status quo. Oh, how would that campaign go? It's like, well, it's it that isn't a campaign. It's dead it in the water possibly. before it came out of your Absolutely. mouth. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you can't you you can't generate movement without generating hysteria. Um, and it seems like the church being conflated so much with politics has sort of led into that. So I want to be careful also, like when, when you and I and others are sort of sounding the alarm on, on things like Christian nationalism or things like, you know, overtly political agendas within the life of a church that we're not trying to create hysteria or panic, but instead it's a call to reasonableness and anchoring in scripture and historic Christian orthodoxy. And we can comfort ourselves. I mean, Lamentations chapter three talks about how the next generation is designed by the Lord to handle these things. Like we Mm -hmm. don't have to be fearful because he's already set up the next generation for the preservation of his word. Anyway, Mm -hmm. the point of of us sounding the alarm is because it's our job. Mm -hmm. We're being obedient. We're we're called to do that. We need to be aware of when our flank is wide open Mm -hmm. and our flank is wide open. Mm -hmm. But it does Mm -hmm. feel rather end of the empire for America, doesn't it? Mm. A little bit. I feel I do feel that way. Like it's like that's it's like everybody's talking about exactly the same things. I'm not saying uh, it is, but Sure. It's plausible. It feels late empire. Yeah, uh-huh. all of the things that we're dealing with are all things that have been dealt with before by mm. previous empires and it was all right before mm. something major happened. But mm. this is a positive. Yeah. Incredible stuff happens for the salvation of souls at the ends of empires. Yes. And we were told that all empires were going to end. Yes. It's a mercy, not a curse. Mm. Well, I mean, if if he really is sovereign, if he really does control the will of kings like waters in the palm of Uh his hands, and our allegiance really is to his kingdom Uh and not to our own kingdom or to any nationality Mm -hmm. or or socio-political, those -hmm. aren't the empires we're actually ultimately allegiant to. Mm Mm-hmm then we should actually welcome whatever change our sovereign king might bring about. That's right. And we just start a vineyard abbey where we all become cloistered monks together. I think it sounds like a party. I've got lots of books I can bring. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That that reminds me of, uh, I I think I mentioned this to you earlier, but there's a book called The Benedict Option by by Rob Dreher. Uh, it's an interesting book, and and that's kind of what he says. Hey, we're on this path; it's inevitable. Um, monasticism is is the next wave, and so be it. Um, I, I, I there are parts of that that doesn't sound absolutely horrible to me, uh, but I actually have a much more hopeful anticipation. And yeah. this kind of goes back to what you referenced earlier. That that once again, I mean, I I, I admit to being a wide eyed optimist all the time. Um, but what you said earlier about some interesting historical trends about every every yes. 500 years tell me tell us about that so the, in seminary you learned this my father i the, he must have learned it there too but um there's a there's a trend that there's normally a major reformation of the church every 500 years and mm-hmm. so you can you can quote unquote set your watch 
buy it because it takes roughly 500 years for humans to really mess something up really badly enough Mm. that there needs to be a reformation. (laughs) And so we should expect that that's about the way that you handle things. And that's Mm. how you memorize timelines. Mm. Like to this day, I will go back in my head, like how, how did I produce what I did? Well, I was, I was monitoring the timeline in my head of where we were in which 500 year stretch I was talking about. Oh, so you get the the, the fall of, you know, the the East versus West Mm -hmm. um, at 500 AD. Right. So it took 500 years to get to there. Okay. Then you've got 1054, right? Uh-huh. That's that's the first Great Schism. Okay. That's where you've got the firm se- separation. Mm-hmm. And then 1500, uh-huh. the Reformation. Right. And now we're 20 years overdue. It's just right there. Yes. Like we're here. And so, and you'll hear people, if, you, if you're around theological circles where we get really nerdy really quickly, mm-hmm. um, you'll see there's like an expectation that what's, what's the next Reformation going to be? Mm-hmm. And one of the current, the groups that claim Reformation, in fact, claims Reformation because of that, that expectation, the new apostolic Reformation. Mm-hmm. The reason why they, they call it the new apostolic Reformation is specifically because this is it. Mm-hmm. This has to be it. The Lord is setting up new apostles to come on to fall under alignment with. We've gone too far away from unity, mm-hmm. right? The Protestant denominations are not even talking to each other. Functionally, they're treating mm-hmm. everybody like you're in a gang. You can't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. You can't change churches. You can't talk to people who leave your church. Just it's it's not healthy. And so we need to, the Lord's going to reinstitute unity under these apostles. Mm-hmm. And but it's all predicated on their, the, the the Reformation needs to happen. It's mm-hmm. here. It's two thousand, and this is going to be it. Mm-hmm. Well, you made an observation. We've talked about the NAR a good, good bit, actually, yes. in, in previous podcasts, and then also you uh, with a community yeah. night address yeah. as well. I promise we won't descend into what's the bee in my bonnet right now. but <laughs> Right. But um, you did make a point earlier about, um, and, we, and we pointed out explicitly talking about Luther earlier, which is, what was it again, that reformers uh, don't set out to be reformers? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you never, none of these guys, these major players in church history that we reference as these major players in Reformation, they were the guys that stood for truth and they were willing to die over it. None of them saw themselves as reformers. Mm. None of them. And when offered power, which they were offered, they refused it. Mm-hmm. So, the there there's a part of me, just from the apologetics perspective, and knowing where we are and sitting where we are theologically in America, and that expectation being there, because we've gone through enough Reformations now to go, oh, hey, mm-hmm. let's see what we're going to do next. Mm-hmm. This is a weird setting. How is this going to work? And is our flank wide open for literally any narcissist to walk in and be like, it's me. I'm the reformer. Follow me. This is reformation. Like, that's never happened before. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. And it was a shock. Right. They didn't have the same sort of historical perspective that we have now. Correct. It's very rare for people inside of a reformation to know it's happening. It's Mm -hmm. the next set of generations that goes, holy cow. That we're in a something. completely different theological environment than we were, than mm-hmm. our parents were. Yeah. And it's like, okay. Yeah. So, we don't know the future. No. But there's there's reason to be hopeful and expectant sure. for the I'm next beautiful thing. And it won't necessarily start with splashy headlines no. and big name celebrity preachers. It, it, it more likely starts... Um, in the grassroots. That's uh, right. Like, if, like the Great Reformation that started, which, which was essentially a move of peasants. Yes. You know, there was one really brilliant monk <laughs> yes. leading the way, yes. but it was, it, was, it was uneducated peasants who were sincerely devoted and allowed the Lord to, and, and never were they, yeah, uh, never did, they didn't know the future either. No. 
Um, but when you walk with Jesus, you go where he leads you. That's correct. And yeah. you're so in love with him, you don't depart from him, so it doesn't really matter. Right. Well, when your ambition, you're more likely to find reformation when your ambition is to walk with Jesus versus let's go start a reformation. Yes. Yeah. Let's and just walk how, with Jesus, love our neighbor, and in the process, we'll end right. up joining God in the renewal of all things. Yes. And how much is being a Christian really just a minor reformation on an individual level? Mm, amen. Yeah. So let's focus on that reformation and we'll just let God handle the rest. Absolutely. That's great. And uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My your very great privilege. I'm glad you guys aren't tired of my creaky voice. Not yet. All right. Not yet. I don't think it's creaky. All right. Thanks so much, Anna. Yep.